Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. The Middle East is home to some of the world's wealthiest countries per capita and many strategic partners of the United States, but it's also home to some of the world's most pressing humanitarian crises. Proxy wars, regional power struggles, religious extremism, and deep historical animosities. It's a complicated region that U.S. foreign policymakers have long struggled to get right. This is Snack Break. I'm Arup Mukherjee, and today, to help us make sense of the shifting dynamics in the Middle East, is Dr. Tariq Massoud, an expert on Middle Eastern politics, democracy, and political institutions, professor of public policy, and the Sultan of Oman, professor of international relations at the Harvard Kennedy School, and the faculty director of the Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative. Tariq, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Arup. So, do people in the Middle East call it the Middle East? Because that would be weird to me. Um, you know, it's interesting. So they do. They call it Sharq al-Awsat, which means the Middle East. Because right. um, it's the center, it's the cradle of civilization. Absolutely. It's the, they should call In it fact, the center, if anything, right? They should call it the center. That's right. I, um, I, maybe that just shows you how much we in the Middle East have internalized <laughs> the colonial discourse. But yeah, in fact, we call it the Middle East. Sometimes you'll call it the Arab region. Um, you know, when we're talking, we'll usually say Al-Mantea, the, the, the region. But yeah, Middle East is, in fact, a big newspaper in the Middle East is called the Shukla, the Middle East. So, yeah. <laughs> what well, used to be called uh, Edward Said's ori Orientalism. It was yes, the, the Orient. Orient um, for, in in fact, Shukla, many yeah. schools in the UK still have schools of Oriental studies that study the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. And there's the American Oriental Society. I mean, there's actually, a, you know, that term is not uh, completely been uh, eradicated. And shifted uh, to, to so yeah, far east. Yeah. So what, what, why, is this, why is this part of the world important? I mean, people talk about it being the, you know, the geographic pivot between Asia, Africa, yeah. and Europe. Yeah. It's also the home to great sources of oil and energy. But, but this fracking revolution in the United States, we don't, we don't need that anymore, right? Why, why is this important? Well, I, you know, I think we can always uh, use energy. Um, I think it's important mainly because I'm from there. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's important to a lot of people in this part of the world for different reasons. So there are some Americans for whom the Middle East importance, I think, stems from the fact that it is the cradle of the world's three Abrahamic religions, and in particularly uh, Christianity, which you know is politically important here. And so I think that is a big part of the connection that a lot of Americans feel towards that part of the world. I mean, if your holy book is constantly referring to lands in the Middle East, it's inevitable that you would think that that place is of outsized importance. Um, as you pointed out, the energy, uh, the fact that you know much of the world's energy comes from that part of the world continues to make it important. And then I think there are knock-on effects of the previous you know, era of, of Middle Eastern importance. So even if you're right that today, for example, the Middle East should be less important, we should be pivoting to Asia, et cetera, the fact is we've been engaged there for so long and uh, the U U.S. foreign policy contributed to a lot of developments in that part of the world that then have knock-on effects. So for example, Middle East is important because we face a challenge of religiously inspired terrorism, right? So that's going to make it uh, continue to be important. We think we need to do something to counter violent extremism in that part of the world. Um, and so that's another ongoing source of uh, the region's importance. And that's why when you try to do something like a pivot to Asia or you try to say, you know, we're going to stop involving ourselves so much in the politics of the region, it's sort of like that line from Godfather 3, you know, the minute I thought I got out, they pulled me back in. 
I didn't quote that exactly right, but you get the idea. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but we, we've had a lot of failures in that part of the world. Is there, are we, are we worse at foreign policy there than we are elsewhere in the world? And if so, why? That's a great question. I would say we're pretty bad at foreign policy everywhere right now. Um, um, I don't know. I couldn't answer the comparative question. Um, and also, I want to say, look, I can, you know, my job is to criticize things. Um, and I can find a lot of things to criticize about American foreign policy. The question is, could our policies in the region have been better? And that's a more open question. So let's talk about the mistakes, right, that you're talking about and the mistakes that we've experienced in our lifetimes, the big one being uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And uh, that was an epic error. And there were people who said this was a mistake right, and was going to be a mistake. The question is, from our standpoint, was it an avoidable mistake? I mean, everything is ultimately avoidable, but the forces pushing us towards that mistake, I think, were pretty irresistible. The fact is, you know, it had been two years since 9-11, and there was, a, uh, I think, a psychological need on the part of a lot of uh, people in our foreign policy establishment to do something, right? That there needed to be some fundamental uh, change in that part of the world, and we, the United States, needed to demonstrate our power. Invading Afghanistan, that wasn't enough. We needed to do something big and bold. Um, and I think if you are a voice saying, uh, this is not going to come out right, this is going to be problematic for us, et cetera, it was very hard for you to uh, get hurt. Yeah, we forget that was bipartisan. It was totally bipartisan, and there are a lot of people today who actually give a lot of credit for revisiting their earlier uh, remarks about that. But there are a lot of people today who you know, s admit that this was a mistake, public uh, you know, intellectuals, et cetera, admit that this was a terrible mistake, but also uh, were you know leading beating the the drums for for this war you know so I think it was really it was really hard and there were a lot of different rationales that you could have come up with yeah. to justify it so one would be look we you know Dick Cheney's argument was Saddam Hussein represents the most likely nexus between weapons of mass destruction and uh, international terrorism now that turned out to be wrong but I don't doubt that he actually believed that. For other people, it was after the Gulf War, the United States had given signals to the uh, Shia population in Iraq that they, uh, that if they rose up against Saddam Hussein, that they would be supported. And in fact, there was an uprising, and the United States didn't support it, and the Shias continued to suffer then under Saddam. So you could make the argument that really we need to make this right, and the way to make this right is to remove Saddam's boot off the neck of the Shias, and of course, of the average Iraqis. Mm -hmm. right? That's another argument that you could have made, and uh, this was an argument I would have made. Luckily, I was a graduate student. Nobody cared about me, so I didn't make this publicly. But I admit, I too thought, well, you know, if you're an Iraqi right now, you're suffering under sanctions. It's so miserable. If the invasion of Iraq and the removal of Saddam Hussein will finally change this terrible sanctions regime, then that can't be bad. So you could have made a, there were a lot of rationales for this, uh, for this policy. And the argument against the policy was an unattractive, unappealing argument, even if it was right, right? The argument against it was, look, Saddam Hussein is terrible, et cetera. But once you remove that authority, once you remove that um, power, you don't know what you're going to unleash. You know, there's this, this line that Hosni Mubarak, uh, in some tellings it's Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's uh, former uh, president, or uh, Amr Musa, who was, I think, at the time the uh, 
chair of the Arab League, but one of them said, some Egyptian, some Egyptian said a smart thing, right, which was, if you invade Iraq, you are going to open the gates of hell, mm -hmm. right? And if you're an American who both, you know, feels the need to do something after 9-11, but also believes that everybody in the world has the potential for democracy and all we need to do is release them from bondage, yeah. that argument is not going to really fly with you. I mean, have you, have you over the course since you, since you were a grad student, have you mo moved uh, further away from that sort of inter interventional, you know, uh, idealism about whether or not the U.S. actually has the ability to not only influence events, but also control them afterward. Yeah, I think I, think I like a lot of people, have become much less uh, idealistic about um, the potential of outside powers, be it the United States or anybody else, to mm -hmm. fundamentally change yeah. uh, what goes on in a country, um, and particularly with respect to its regime type. Um, but I have to say, you know, I, even if I really interrogate my views, there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of contradictions that I still have to resolve. So, for example, uh, it, you know, I, I co-authored a book about the Arab Spring and why the Arab Spring, which is the season of revolution that happened in 2010 and onwards, late 2010, really starts in 2011, why that really didn't result in democracy except in this tiny yeah. country. A little bit of a tease. Yeah, yeah. What, what's, what's the tease? The Arab Spring uh, yes. for democracy, right? It, it didn't quite oh, pan oh. out the way that uh, everybody thought it yes. would. Yes, I, yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as a tease. I would more describe it as a crushing disappointment <laughs> yes. that, uh, you know, has no, me in tears I, sometimes. But yeah. um, the question is, why didn't that work out? And, you know, when I co-authored a book about this, we really paid a lot of attention to domestic dynamics in these different countries. Yeah. Well, you didn't have this, you know, condition or that condition, et cetera. And not a lot of attention to the role of outside powers. Yeah. And I think today, if you're looking at um, the Arab Spring and trying to come to terms with what happened and you're writing the history of the Arab Spring and the failure, you can't ignore the role of outside power. So David Kirkpatrick, the former um, Cairo bureau chief of the New York Times, just came out with a book about the, mil about the Egyptian revolution, but he focuses a lot on the uh, military's overthrow of Egypt's president in 2013. Egypt had a democratically elected president who was a pretty untalented guy, but nonetheless democratically elected. He was overthrown by the military in 2013. And Kirkpatrick does a lot of interviews in Washington and really finds that the military's decision calculus, the military's decision to overthrow uh, that president was in fact influenced by signals they were getting from Washington. So. I don't want to say that we can't influence, uh, or the United States can't influence what happens uh, abroad uh, in other countries, but I do still believe that the United States cannot implant democracy, mm -hmm. which is the argument that was being made uh, with the Iraqi, um, with the Iraqi adventure. And I would go further and say, not only can the United States not implant democracy, but we also have to be real. It's not clear to me that the United States would want to implant democracy. Yeah. Right? Uh, sometimes it can be, well, as we've, as we've discovered in, in Iraq and uh, in other parts, uh, it can be destabilizing in a whole bunch of ways. What is the path for democracy? Is it something we want? And, and maybe more importantly, is it something folks in the Middle East want? Um, and where's our evidence? And and uh, what does that path look like? So l l let me take the first question first. Yeah. Is democracy something the people in the Middle East want? And uh, I would say absolutely yes, with an asterisk. With asterisk being, look, by democracy, I would say decent government that recognizes and respects the bodily integrity of its citizens 
and that is accountable to the wishes of the citizenry. Now, what the exact precise institutional form that takes is, is of less concern to me, right? But the fact is that do the people of the region uh, want this? And I would say, absolutely, they want it. And I would go further and say, they want it as much as you and I want it here. Um, I really think this idea that the people of the Middle East do not want democracy or they want a strong hand to, I don't think that's uh, a fundamental uh, 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 demand of, of the people. I think the, fundamentally they have the same mental machinery that everybody else has around the world and, and it's natural to, to want freedom, accountability, and, uh, and dignity. The second question is, uh, does the United States want it? And I don't know. Yeah. Um, now, should the United States want it? I believe morally, yes, the answer should be we should always want democracy. Now, that will sometimes come at a cost to the United States. So, for example, I think just to bring it back to the Egyptian case and, and to bring it back to Kirkpatrick's account of how the United States wasn't totally opposed to the undoing of Egyptian democracy in 2013. I think part of that was because democracy had brought to power uh, a political movement, affiliated, a political party uh, that came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, That's which right. is a pretty conservative and um, I would even go so far as to say anti-American organization. I don't think that's a controversial way of framing their uh, foreign policy uh, preferences. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an American policymaker and you're thinking about whether democracy is really in your interest, well, certainly in your short-term interest, you could say it isn't. We've got these people who are much less cooperative and much less flexible and much less attentive to the American interest. Mm -hmm. But you might also think, well, in the long term, maybe it's better for us to deal with governments there that are actually uh, legitimate with their people yeah. um, as opposed to governments that uh, that aren't. I mean, there's this tension between, and I don't know if it's a false choice, but between stability and democracy. Um, and that's often how it is pitched, I think, in the United States as, well, we could support these horrible leaders who nonetheless do maintain some degree of stability. And if we don't have stability, then we have chaos and havens of terrorism, et cetera. Yeah. Um, do you see a trade-off there, um, or is it a false choice? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, our studies of democracy and certainly of democratization uh, reveal that in that in the initial period after a dem or during a democratic transition, there almost always is a diminution of um, authority of of order, right? So you know, if I just think about you know the Egyptian case after the Egyptian revolution, there was a lot of um, a lot of things started to fly that wouldn't fly. So you started even seeing like, you know, street vendors where you wouldn't ordinarily see them and crime was up. And, and um, so I think, you know, when you move from a, a highly repressive authoritarian state to something that's more open, that that openness is going to come with maybe some, uh, some decay in order. And the question is, you know, how do you know how do you limit that decay in, in order such that you don't get people saying, you know what, we want a democracy, but mm -hmm. God, it's been so bad for us. Maybe if the strong man shows up, we'll just accept it for now. So so I think I so I think it's trivially true that in the short or immediate term democratic transitions lead to uh, some more instability. Mm -hmm. The 
point I might make, though, is that longer term, you might get more stability, right? You don't have to contend with the, you know, if you can make it past that initial phase and you consolidate or, or root your democracy a little bit more, more firmly, um, you, you actually get a kind of more stable regime, right? That, um, and actually a regime that's more predictable because, you know, all you have to do to know sort of what the, how this regime is going to behave is kind of read public opinion in part. So. Unless, unless it's the yeah. United States. Um, I feel like Trump has given democracy a little bit of a bad name. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't study the United States. I will say, I believe, uh, President Trump is perhaps our first Egyptian president, uh, <laughs> just given his political style. Really, actually, you know, the person in Egypt who reminds me most of President Trump is the former president of a football club uh, in Egypt that my family uh, roots for, who is just a completely outlandish guy, yeah. always on Twitter, insulting people, and ran for president in Egypt many times, and or a couple of times, and never, never yeah. got anywhere. And I'm like, that guy has now gotten elected, but in America. Um, so, so I do, I do think you're right that in the United States, certainly Trump has given, uh, you know, people look at Trump and look at his unpredictability, right. and they think, wow, you know, we used to thinking now what the person in the Middle East mm. or elsewhere in the in the world thinks. We used to view America as this very, uh, very professional. Its government is very professional. Mm. It pursues its interests, it's not given to whims, et cetera. And now we've got this uh, person who seems to make foreign policy on the fly. I mean, th that's a possible, um, you know, view, but I will say in my, uh, you know, my brief conversations with people who are in the foreign policy apparatuses of those places, they would point to you, point you to the fact that there's actually quite, uh, quite a bit of stability mm -hmm. in terms of the way the, the U.S. acts, particularly uh, in the Middle East, there hasn't really been a dramatic change in U.S. Middle East policy. Right. I mean, so, so maybe I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But well, I think I think it's time for a snack break. All right, let's do it. Now, your favorite snack is donuts and, and coffee. I, I have a lot of favorite snacks. That was the one <laughs> I could come them. up with when you asked me. These are from a local donutery. Oh wow. Um, oh, thank you for your the coffee, coffee called thank Blackbird you, Donuts. They. Do you get like a? A, uh, a kickback from them for mentioning them. Yeah, I, I should actually. <laughs> I we'll see if they'll retweet it. Yeah. Um, so they're, uh, they're they, they call themselves an artisanal yeah. donut shop, um, and they certainly make very pretty uh, pretty donuts. There's also um, so sweet and savory. I don't. I assume you have a sweet tooth. I do, but you know, so you, I, that one looks like it has some everything spice on it. So yeah, that's a, that's an everything that's an everything not bagel but everything donut. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you even want to have. I I would love to have it. The problem is it's got all the poppy seeds, which then get stuck in your you teeth. Can get, yeah. So we've got two regular glazed. Uh, there's yeah. a chocolate cake donut, which is a denser donut. The one in the middle is actually, you, you got some. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one I'm interested in. The one in the middle. Yeah. So that is. Um, it's called a purple cow donut, oh, and I picked that it out. People often call me that. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I went to my undergraduate alma mater, uh, Williams College. Their their mascot is a purple cow, so I oh. felt I had to get it. Okay, then you got to eat no, that oh, one. No, we can. I'll have the. I'll have the glaze. Split it in half. Okay, let's split the. Let's split a purple cow. See what happens. Cow. Yeah. So um, so uh, how does this work? You want me to help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Um, so um. Give me a fork, just so I don't get my. You know, I always eat my donuts with a fork and knife. You really? No. What? No, just reminds me. You know that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza eats the candy bar with a fork and knife, and the person <laughs> says, "What are you doing?" And he says, 
Well, how do you eat it? With your hand? <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, no, I'm a big fan of donuts. Yeah. I don't have them often enough. I've always yes, felt I that do. like every culture has certain standards in their in their cuisine. Yes. Every culture has like a breakfast egg dish. I feel like every culture has a like a rice pudding, um, and everyone has like a fried dough. Oh, absolutely. Covered in sugar dish. Yes, that's um, absolutely. And absolutely. In the United States, it's the donut. Um, there's the churro, of course. Um, in India, something called the jalebi. I don't know if you've ever yeah, heard of it. Yeah, jalebi, yeah. It's neon orange. Yeah. That, we have something, like we have we have zalebia, which is the oh. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like yeah. this weird squiggly little yeah. like neon orange which thing. Which I, I like always syrup. hated as a kid. <laughs> oh, I loved it as a kid. Um, and I now like it because, yeah. when, you know, it, it pairs really well with coffee. Oh. And so, you know, that kind of hyper sickly sweet mm. thing with a really strong, robust coffee is pretty... Uh, pretty appealing to me. I don't know if you guys noticed. I was trying. One, I love this show. I love yeah. watching it. It's great. Uh, um, it, it's wonderful. I will also note for everybody that we actually are at Harvard and not in a <laughs> Ramada Inn in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, you can't tell, but um, but the only thing I don't like is the chewing sounds. Mm, so I've been really? trying to. You See, know, I feel okay. like the people on the podcast. So because we, we, it's also we would use it as a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, they like the chewing. I don't well, like, I, how else do you know that we're eating that it's actually true? Yeah, I guess. Well, not. I'm trying to like block the mic when I when <laughs> I chew, but um, no. Uh, uh, but it's great. It's awesome. This this donut was fantastic. Yeah. Actually. So this is a this is really a lot of fun to eat. I'm a big yeah. chocolate fan. Yeah. Oh, this is a good one. Um, yeah. So I grew up in in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and um, one thing that we used to do after Friday prayers is we would actually go to a donut place called Mr. Donut and get, <laughs> uh, get donuts. Um, so, you know, that's a donuts great, are global, really, my man. Really, yeah, do you yeah. think donuts are America's softest power? <laughs> that's a good one. Did you practice that one? Or do you you just came up with that. That's why you're a Harvard PhD student, you know. Um, are they America's softest power? I guess so, you know. <laughs> I mean, if we had more donuts, if we had more Mr. Donuts in the Middle East, would we... Would people like us more? I, you know, I don't know. They would certainly be fatter, uh, <laughs> you know. Although we've got pretty high rates of obesity, actually, if you think about it, uh, particularly in the in the Gulf. Um, really? Yeah, a lot of because we, a lot of carbs, taking a lot of carbs. Is and, exercise not a part of the the culture as much? Well, I mean, you know. I think you know, you know, if you went to a Bedouin and you said, "Hey, are you guys exercising?" You're like, My whole life is exercise. I need a rest. Um, um, so no, it isn't. And you know, it's you don't have a very big outdoor culture. Um, although I'm sure, again, somebody watching this who's from Saudi Arabia could talk about how they, you know, there's going into the desert and say, but you know, it is very hot. Yeah. You know, so the idea that I'm going to go out for a jog, I mean, that's yeah. not really, thing. Uh, that's not really a thing. You know, and so you're not outside in the middle of the day unless you really need to be. Um, well, yeah. So on, on, on the topic of Saudi Arabia, one of the challenges, current challenges of US foreign policy, um, it seems like the dynamics are shifting away from, maybe this is temporary, but what's what people talk about is less US support of Israel, for instance, as a thorn. Mm. So much is, is around uh, the Iran-Saudi Arabia rivalry uh, and the new a crown prince in Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And I guess I want to first start off with, with does your, your experience in Saudi Arabia for so many years, does that inform, are there experiences there that inform how you think about that society, its ability to change in the way that 
um, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known, yeah. um, is arguing. Um, so I see two uh, really big and important questions. So the first is that absolutely as people probably uh, know who are paying attention to the news in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi leadership, uh, you know, the, and particularly the crown prince of that country, Mohammed bin Salman, before he was known for ordering the execution of journalists, he was known as uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, reformer, the guy who wanted to take this country from being the kind of place yeah. that doesn't allow women to drive, yeah. that is, uh, you know, in the thrall, in thrall to a particular hyper-conservative brand of Islam. He's the guy who wanted to change those things and make the country more open, more liberal, et cetera. And um, the question is, you know, what's the, could he succeed, right? And what do my experiences growing up in Saudi Arabia and studying it since then uh, lead me to think? And then the second question you asked was more about uh, sort of U.S. foreign policy and how the central obsession with mm -hmm. U.S. foreign policy now seems to be, uh, you know, uh, countering uh, Iranian, uh, potential Iranian hegemony in the region. So. Let me take the second one first, and then we can talk about the first one. They're both great yeah. questions. So the second question, you know, we are, you're, you're absolutely right, we are hyper-focused about Iran. Iran is the kind of the rhetorical equivalent of the evil empire right, uh, right now. Yeah. And in a way, it's because two of our most important allies in the Middle East are obsessed with Iran. Yeah. And they're two allies that haven't totally agreed on a lot of things, yeah. if, you, if you think about it, right? Israel obsessed with Iran in part because the Iranians give them many reasons to be obsessed with them, not just because they support uh, Hezbollah, right. uh, which is the Shiite mm -hmm. militia operating out of Lebanon, which is a continued uh, threat and nuisance to Israel, but also because of their rhetoric. You know, yeah. this is the country that hosted, you know, Holocaust denial conferences and all kinds of things like that. Talk, you know, their leaders talk about removing Israel from the map. So of course you're gonna be uh, obsessed with uh, Iran. Even if somebody like me might say, well, a lot of this is just Iran playing to the cheap seats and is not necessarily real, but nonetheless, you know, it's, it's, you can understand why somebody would be obsessed with this, uh, with this country and view it as their primary threat. And then the Saudis are also obsessed with Iran, right? And you could make the argument that they have even more reason to be obsessed with Iran. Not only is there a relatively large uh, minority, particularly in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, that adheres to the same minority sect of Islam, uh, Shiism, which is about 10% uh, about of Muslims uh, globally, uh, and who the Saudis are constantly worried about uh, becoming a kind of Iranian uh, fifth column. So you've got that. You've got the fact that Iran funds and supports uh, militias in Yemen mm -hmm. uh, that are, you know, that threaten Saudi Arabia, have even launched rockets into right. Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Um, and you've got the, you know, and you've got Iran trying to increase its influence in Syria mm -hmm. by funding, you know, uh, by supporting the Assad regime, right. bringing Hezbollah in. So there's a lot of different ways in which you, you're the Saudis, you share a maritime border yeah. with Iran, you would be very concerned. And we in the United States, these are our two great allies. They both um, are obsessed with Iran. You could understand why that, that might uh, influence our uh, foreign policy decision making. You know. My, my view is, you know, I think the Obama administration had it right. You make deals with Iran where you can make deals with them in order to, 
to uh, prevent them from getting nuclear capacity, but you remain tough on them in other dimensions. You have to negotiate or talk to your rivals as opposed to, uh, you know, just shutting them out. And, and uh, um, so I, you know, my view is I think if it, you know, I, I you notice a lot, you know, so this, the, I had this realization when I was watching one of the Republican uh, presidential debates, and I can't remember who it was, but I, I want to say it was Marco Rubio, but it may have been Ted Cruz, and so you can't edit this out, so I'm just going to say yeah, I We can edit it out. No, 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 let's keep it, let's keep it real. I don't remember who it was, but somebody <laughs> referred to the Shia Crescent, right? This idea of the oh. Shia, you know, Shias sort of taking over this crescent all the way from, you know, Iran to Lebanon, et cetera. And I thought, wow, why are our politicians adopting the cramped sectarian language of the <laughs> of the Middle East? Like, you know, I definitely want more bridges between the United yeah. States and the Middle East. I want more cultural back and forth, but not this one, you know. I like us to be above the kind of sectarian, uh, sectarian squabbles yeah. that animate politics in that part of the world. So I do think the reality is that we've been, you know, heavily influenced. Um, and again, I do think myself, I, uh, for me it's, you know, I do think the Iranian influence in the Middle East has been uh, mischievous and problematic and that Iranian ambitions do need to be countered uh, in the Middle East. We cannot be uh, blasé about what Iran is trying to do, but we can be a lot cleverer than we are. I think we're try kind of adopting wholesale mm -hmm. the prejudices of some of our allies, particularly the allies in, in my part of the yeah. Middle East. And I'm not sure that's good for us or for them. Are we, are we seeing a coalition? Uh, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, historically not, have not been on great terms, mm. but now that they have a common enemy, uh, not to mention that it's also been, uh, Iran has dr driven some wedges between Saudi Arabia and its Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC yeah. partners, um, Qatar being the most yeah. prominent example. Are we seeing a, a shifting dynamic where uh, what traditionally, traditionally enemies are now kind of coming together against Iran, there's sort of a balance happening? Is that? I definitely think that you're absolutely right that ties between Gulf countries or Middle Eastern, uh, Arab countries, Arab Muslim majority countries, and uh, Israel are becoming closer as a result of this sense of shared mm -hmm. enmity towards Iran. Um, you know, I was just in Israel, and um, everybody in Israel, I guess, thought I was from Oman because my uh, my title is the Sultan right. of Oman professor. And you know, Arabs would say, you know, why is why is your government meeting with Netanyahu? Because you know, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had just been there. And um, so there, you know, that was, there absolutely is this sense uh, that uh, there's a lot more mm -hmm. public, you know, cooperation, et cetera, between uh, Israel and the Arab countries. And look, myself as somebody who's really, for as long as I can remember, been committed to the idea of peace and coexistence between Israel and its Arab neighbors and Israelis and Palestinians. You know, on the one hand, I like it, mm -hmm. right, when Arab countries and Israel cooperate on things. Uh, on the other hand, I, I do ask myself, you know, you know, if you think about Saudi Arabia, right, mm -hmm. the, what they're, what they're, what they, you know, they're, they, I was raised in Saudi Arabia and I was raised on a steady diet of anti-Israeli rhetoric, right? We were told this is completely legitimate. You know, you're taught that in the, close to the day of judgment, there will be a, 
great battle between believers and the Jews, and it will be, it will get to the point where the trees and the rocks will come and tell you, here, the Jew is here, come and kill. What do you think about when you hear that sort of stuff? What do you think? Well, well, here's what, here's what, I, here's what I think. I think it's ob- yeah. absolutely insane, right? But the point is now this, what the, what, what the, so, but the fact, the fact of the matter is these governments have these populations that for reasons of some of this indoctrination, but also for reasons of the natural solidarity that you would expect between Arab citizens and Palestinians mm. who you know, are living under occupation. Mm. Um, for both of these reasons, right, you have populations who don't view Israel as an ally. Mm. And so you've got a government, though, that does view Israel as an ally because of Iran. Mm. And so how are they going to get their populations on board with them? Well, what they're going to have to do is stoke anti-Iranian yeah. sentiment. And what does that stoking of anti-Iranian sentiment usually look like? It looks like stoking really base sectarian sentiment. The Shias, they're the worst, they're the enemy, etc. And so you then think to yourself, like, this is how we're going to liberalize this part of the world? Mm-hmm. By trading one hatred for another hatred? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure. You're skeptical about MBS's ability I'm skeptical to... and I'm skeptical. If I, you know, if I were the Israelis, I'm not sure that the foundation for cooperation, I would want the foundation for my cooperation with the Arab world to be based on, uh, you know, the stoking of uh, yeah. sectarian. Sentiment. It's almost like a fl- the flavor of the day. I mean, you don't see you don't see him as a. Maybe he's sort of styling himself as a modern day Ataturk, yes. of course. And so, um, but he seems to be he seems to be picking a lot of fights with a lot of different people. Is that a false image? I think you're almost? absolutely right that he was sort of being touted as as what I like to say like a pocket Ataturk. I definitely would like uh, the crown princes modernizing agenda, the agenda for liberating uh, Saudi women, uh, the agenda for modernizing the economy, for weaning it off of its reliance on oil. I would like that agenda to succeed. The question is, what is the potential for success? And uh, MBS is very different from Ataturk. So Ataturk was an autocrat, but he never spoke against democracy, or at least, you know, somebody again might watch this and tell me, no, in such and such day he did. But, you know, he tried to institute a Republican form of government. Um, and this is, to me, quite remarkable because Ataturk was operating at a time in which democracy was in pretty bad odor around the world, right? You ha- and, and, in, and in the cradle of democracy, right? In Europe, you had, you know, fascist movements who are explicitly anti-democratic. But then I got this guy, Ataturk, who's saying, I'm setting up a republic, yeah. right? So, you, you know, Mohammed bin Salman isn't doing that, right? So there's, you know, Ataturk had a political discourse that was democratizing, at least, or that was about setting up a government that was formally democratic. That is not what we have in Saudi Arabia. And then Ataturk had, um, he just inherited a very different political, different political landscape. Remember, this is the guy who, after the conclusion of uh, World War One. He's the one who rescues modern-day Turkey from complete dismemberment, right, by mm-hmm. the the invading powers, British, Greece, etc. Um, and so 
and he was the guy. He was the leader. He was the rezi, right? Cred. The, yeah. So he had an enormous amount of cred. So yeah. I like to say, if he told, you know, so one of the things he did was he said, "We got to stop wearing the the traditional Turkish headgear, the fez, and you yeah. wear, you know, you wear, you have to wear, or what we call in Egypt the tarbush, yeah. and you have to wear, you know, yeah. uh, Western hats. You know, yeah. if he told people they had to wear beanies with yeah. propellers on their heads, they might have done it. So great was his political credibility. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't see. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman enjoying that same amount of political credibility. In fact, as you note, you know, to get to be yeah. the Crown Prince, he had to engage in a lot of Game of Thrones-like mm -hmm. intrigue that left a lot of people feeling very bruised. And so you do have, even within Saudi Arabia, within the royal family, a lot of people are just waiting to settle scores yeah. with him. And then, so he's got all these, fight, these fights he's opened up with members of the, the royal family. And then he makes the religious establishment a little annoyed because he's trying to modernize on things that they care about. And then he's opened another front with Iran. And he's opened yet another front with the Muslim Brotherhood, which, if you believe my enemy's enemy is my friend, that doesn't seem terribly Kidnapped wise. the Lebanese prime minister. Kidnaps the Lebanese <laughs> prime minister, right. kidnapped a bunch of his, you know, country's largest businessmen and right. members of the royal family. Now, kidnapped them in a way that maybe was uh, quite civilized. Ritz, they get put right. up in the Ritz-Carlton, but still. Did die or something? Yeah, there were, there are, there are absolutely yeah. uh, allegations of uh, uh, torture and other abuses. So, the, but the point is, uh, he's really opened a lot of uh, fronts for himself. Yeah. And so, the question is, how will this, um, how will this resolve itself? Uh, it's it's hard to say. Hard to say. Before we end, you brought something special. I know we're almost oh, out oh, of time. Oh, well, yeah. You, well, I totally forgot that I brought I, this, I, but I, I was going to say... You're the first person who actually brought a counter snap. I, I'm an Arab, <laughs> and I'm constitutionally incapable of showing up empty-handed, but I also am trying to, like, empty out my pantry, and yeah. so we have a bunch of this. This is... Uh, uh, what what is called Turkish delight or locum yeah, I and love uh, Turkish delight. So, what exactly so, is this? There because they're different types, right? So so this Turkish delight I think is dusted with coconut and has some pistachio in it. The the substance is I, I really don't know. It's probably like a lot of cornstarch. It's yeah. like some kind of gelatiny. It's gelatinous, right? Yeah, but yeah. we don't uh, they don't one. use gelatin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they don't. Yeah. So they do, a... Well, or they probably use beef gelatin, but I doubt that this one has gelatin in yeah. it. Um, I think it's like cornstarch and some lemon juice and other things. Again, somebody watching this might know the precise recipe. Pistachios. Mm. Yeah. But very good with coffee, mm. I find. Like, so again, as my palate has become a little bit more sophisticated, uh, when I was a kid, whenever you'd, whenever somebody would bring a box of these, you'd always tell your parents like afterwards, like, don't invite those people. Again. Like <laughs> really? when I was a kid, I used to like the people would bring these tins of British chocolate. We're like, invite those guys over again. <laughs> uh, but now as I get older, I like coffee, and I really like a Turkish delight with coffee. Mm, yeah. yeah, there's some that are rose flavored, and the many types mm -hmm. of flavorings that they have. Mm. Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to cover the mic. <laughs> this is too good. Um, well, Tark, thank you. Hey, thank you for the snacks. That's enjoy. <clears throat> that was uncalled for, but <laughs> it was extremely well appreciated. Thank um, you, and uh, and thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you, Arup. This yeah. is great. Thank you. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center. Hauser Studio, Tara Cavanaugh, and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, find us on YouTube 
or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com. 